Welcome to the Hello Coffee, my old friend podcast hosted by Roast House Coffee. We're located in Spokane, Washington, and our small team is committed to roasting organic, sustainable, earth-friendly coffee. This podcast covers all sorts of topics to educate both coffee lovers and non-coffee lovers on ways to better the planet with a damn good cup in your hand. My name's Aaron, and my co-host here is Anissa. And today, we're excited to have on our good friend, Dean. Dean, how's it going? Hi. Good. Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, What are you sipping on today? Uh, Well, I got a blend... um from the roastery here in Kansas city. I'm based out of Kansas city, Missouri. Um, I'm not positive what the blend is made up, but it's really tasty. That's the best. Do you find you gravitate more towards blends or single origins? I think it's kind of like there are two types of coffees that I normally gravitate to. There's like the utility coffee, which is like, please, for the love of God, wake me up. I need to get going right now. Um, <laughs> like, I'm not going to discriminate. It's here to get the job done. Yeah, please, please get in my system now. Um, and then the other is typically like something that I might enjoy with a friend or if I'm at a coffee shop. Um, normally, I'm a, I'm a sucker for bright, juicy, vibrant coffees, which I think pigeonholes me as like a, a millennial. I think I just described the millennial <laughs> coffee as what I just did. Only if you put oat milk in it. Yeah. <laughs> oat milk yurks. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the real uh, like brand loyalty, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> Are you an Oatly or a minor figures person. Uh-oh. This is about to come. Don't to even work. bring Polifia yeah. into the conversation. Yeah. I'm not. It's about to get spicy. I'm not, I'm not touching that. This is too. This is too controversial. <laughs> I'm not ready. You didn't warn me we were going to talk about this. I don't remember oat milk in the in the letter you sent me, Aaron. Now I'm panicking. Uh, yeah, this that's the gotcha question. It's like, where do you fall on your oat milk preferences? <laughs> yeah, we're uh, we're actually sipping on the very last batch of our uh, Columbia La Pradera Geisha. Actually, awesome. that you helped us source. That's awesome. Yeah, I had a chance to, you were kind enough, y'all and your team were kind enough to send me some of that coffee. And so I got to drink some at home. And then the other thing that I love to do is normally when you send me coffee or if other roasters send me coffee, I would just adore sharing it with other people. Um, So normally I'll like go to like one of my favorite coffee shops in the area or, you know, if I just have friends that are enthusiasts and normally they can't get their hands on something like this. And so it's, really fun to to share it with someone and especially someone who might not necessarily have access or even knowledge of like those types of coffees and just get to vibe with them on it yeah totally it's uh it's delicious it's like really almost kind of like canned mandarins it's mm-hmm. got that like mm-hmm. juicy sweet syrupy magic to it it's just hella That's sweet like, yeah it's crazy i'm i'm excited we we got another coffee coming in from them couple this year huh we got mm-hmm. what three mm-hmm. three cooking so yeah la Pradera and columbia is killing it mm-hmm. they're knocking it out well for those that don't know who you are dean uh we've known each other for gosh five six seven how, how many moons i want to say about five ish five ish 
uh, yeah, we, you, you work for an importing company that, that we've had the pleasure of working alongside and all the and team at Ally has been tremendous yeah. and very helpful for us. And so in our first episode, we talked about sustainability when it comes to organic coffee production and the certification of that. We had Deb as the guest. So, you know, you're, you're batting up next after Deb. So Dude, no I, it's just like, did you really have to bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> bring in the heat. You straight up just brought your all-star and then here comes <laughs> Uh, and That's so hilarious. what we're, what we covered in that episode was, was how we define sustainability, which in an era of greenwashing and companies where we use a lot of similar language to describe maybe altruistic mechanisms of capitalism, for lack of a better term, it gets muddy really fast in yeah. how we communicate that. And so our working definition as it stands today uh, May 31st, 2021 <laughs> is that, you know, making hard decisions today that the next generation can have a viable business model to run on is, is kind of the idea of sustainability, meaning that you're not just thinking about the issues of today, but you're also thinking about how is this going to affect the model 10 years down yeah. the road, 20 years yeah, down the yeah. road. The opposite of extraction. Correct. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you and I have had, I mean, I've learned so much from you over the last two years, I would say that we've really been dip, digging into the economic dynamics of the coffee supply chain. And so what I'd really love if you'd be willing to crack into what inspired you to go down researching, investing your time and energy, both as a professional, and I believe you've spent plenty of time in your after working hours too, uh, researching all the econo economic implications of how coffee is sourced and how coffee is purchased. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is this it. I'll go ahead and start off with a, a, a personal story that was kind of like a, a catalyst to my curiosity and um, a little a little bit of my background, you know, before I started working with with Ally, um, you know, I had been a barista for several years. Um, I'd also done some, uh, like selling roasted coffee for, for wholesale, um, training, um, and then also barista competitions. And so I was really kind of like integrated into like the third wave culture in particular. And, um, I was, I was infatuated with, with the industry in its entirety. And, um, you know, I had this idea, especially as a competitor, as far as like what our role as a barista is, what the role of a roaster is, and more or less what the role of an importer exporter is, and then what the role of, um, of a farmer is, you know, and for me, like the idea of like going to coffee origin or a coffee producing country and visiting producers, um, was like the apex in my mind, you know, um, very much, uh, almost like a religious experience in itself, something that I was striving to, for, um, and something that I personally really wanted to experience myself, you know, um, Fast forward a, a few years, you know, around like 2014, 2015, I had the chance to go ahead and uh, head down to Guatemala um, 
with a connection that I had met at uh, SEA at Expo one year. Um, he was trying to create market access for producers in Guatemala. Um, and we struck a, a, a conversation, kept in contact with one another. And he had sent me some coffee. I had sample roasted it. I was like, this is amazing. I want to come visit. And so I took a trip by myself to Guatemala to go ahead and visit this uh, producer. Um, and when I arrived, I was like completely swept up um, in like the romanticism of it. Like I finally got to see coffee like growing, um, you know, after like six, seven years of being a barista and telling these stories over and over and over again and being infatuated with it and tasting so many different types of coffees. Um, and we were there for probably about three or four days at the farm and got to see like harvest and production. And then um, the producer asked if I would be willing to go ahead and cup some coffees at Anna, uh, at a lab in Anna Cafe. And um, along with like several other like uh, producers that were kind of affiliated with, with one another. Um, and so the next day we headed into Barbarena and got to meet the producers. Most of them spoke English and Spanish and the mood was like very light and jovial and, you know, everyone was having a good time. Um, and then we started grinding coffee and everything went like really, really, really quiet and it was super tense and you could feel it. And so it's myself and a buddy of mine who were cupping coffees while these producers were just kind of like, I mean, these are like bigger men, proud men, I would say. And, you know, they had their arms crossed and they're just waiting, you know, to hear your your analysis on, you know, what they what you think of their coffee and especially how it aligns with like market expectations, you know, for the U.S. And um, I went ahead and gave cupping scores back and, you know, they were pretty happy with it. And then they asked one thing I didn't expect from them was asking, you know, what was like market indication for these coffees. Um, and, you know, at the time, uh, the market was still fairly low at $1.40 a pound, um, the C market. And so I had a, a general idea, more or less, on like what I thought those coffees could fetch. Um, but it was drastically lower than what they had expected for what they heard specialty coffee was. Um, and for the next two hours, my head just kind of spun. Um, there was a lot of animosity and frustration that was directed towards me. But, you know, on reflection, I felt like I was more of a conduit. Like there was frustration towards low prices. There was frustration towards, um, you know, uh, roasters and just traders and to consumers as well. And then the one thing that I didn't expect was when they started asking me things like, how much does a cup of coffee go for in the States? And then how much does roasted coffee go for the States? And then all of a sudden I could see in their eyes them dreaming and scheming of opening up a roasting facility or like a roaster retailer in the States. And I'm like, holy shit, this is like so much backwards than like me going and visiting. I was expecting to find paradise. And then all of a sudden here they're dreaming of like the inverse. Um, and so the ride home after about two hours, we left on on a good note. Everyone was absolutely exhausted by the end of it. But I just remember the world being so much larger than what I had expected it to be and the you know, potential solutions for producers in particular. You know, these are like fairly well off, like medium-sized producers in Guatemala. You know, they're they're not smallholders, but they're also not like 
you know, macro commercial or, uh, growers at the same time. And I just remember feeling like I'm not get getting something here. Um, and so that really kind of kicked off for me, like, all right, I need to dig deeper than what I had been anticipating at that moment. Um, and so I just started Googling shit. I mean, as, as simple, as simple <laughs> as it is, I mean, that's, that's really what it came down to was like, all right, what can like I find online, you know? And so I wanted to understand a little more of the history of the trade itself. Um, as far as like, well, how did, how did we get here? You know? And I mean, all respect to, um, you know, trade magazines and those that do journalism and, and to the SCA and NCA, but, um, I just wasn't necessarily content with the answers that I was, that I was finding per se. Um, and then I ran across a kind of an old anthropo anthropological article from a journal in the early 1990s called Yuppie Coffee Drinkers. Um, and there it kind of just laid out the history of specialty coffee in itself. Um, and then that's when I realized that coffee um, within the social sciences had been studied for decades. Um, but we didn't necessarily in the industry have access to that information for one reason or another. Um, and then I really need to make a huge shout out to Sabine Parrish in particular. Um, she just finished her, her PhD in coffee and we had spent some time in Brazil together. Um, and then she just started sending me, you know, different scholars and different papers. And then at that point I was able to look at primary sources and citations and just kind of like jump off like a rabbit hole onto my own. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's really what inspired me, you know, as far as like digging deeper into like economics and coffee. Yeah, that's uh, I, I really appreciate you sharing that story because I think there's a lot that goes into the translation from our perspective as roasters, baristas, and even consumers in North America, Europe, wherever, wherever consuming countries are in existence. And the difference between that reality and the reality of how coffee gets produced and how coffee gets sold is, yeah, it's, it's crazy to have that experience for you to have that experience. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And it was really daunting, you know, um, like I, I remember waking up and the following morning and just like, I mean, complete disillusionment at that time. And it, it was more of like, um, confusion, um, just as far as like, well, how did I, how did I have like such like a strong grasp on like what actually happens in coffee producing countries versus like, what the hell did I just experience? And why don't the two necessarily line up with one another? Yeah. And so I kind of feel like more or less, I mean, this is, this is, this is kind of what we're stuck in, you know, you and I kind of talking to one another, trying to figure it out on, on our end. Um, and then, you know, coffee producers more or less talking with themselves, trying to figure it out on their end. How do we demystify some of the history of how coffee has been sold? So, you know, we've talked about the international coffee agreement before that existed and you can correct me on the time span that it existed. And then you also have a C market or mm -hmm. a commodity market for coffee. Mm -hmm. And then you also have fair trade which is a certification of how coffee is sold and what the price point is. So can, can you kind of briefly give a snapshot of 
how each of those have functioned in how coffee gets sold? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'll give it my best. You know, I, I should preface by saying like at, at best, I'm a, you know, like academic enthusiast in the sense that like, I really enjoy reading papers in particular and just kind of gleaning off of them. Um, and so with that said, you know, I think probably the futures market is the best place to start. And um, it's a little bit before the time period that I have normally studied over the last two or three years. But um, and definitely anyone who's listening to this that wants to correct me, please, please, please do. Um, but my understanding, you know, was essentially that like more or less, um, you know, the the futures market, um, at least with within coffee was a mechanism in order to help mitigate price fluctuations of supply and demand. Because normally with a harvest, you know, you would get a flooding of coffee and then all of a sudden you're not buying as much coffee. And so um, the price of green coffee could fluctuate up and down, you know. And so at that point, the futures market was um, developed as a place where you could kind of mitigate that risk for buyers and sellers of, of coffee. Um, where a buyer could buy coffee at one point in the year versus when a seller ends up selling. Uh, and both of them could potentially find advantageous prices for, for themselves. Um, and then um, over the, the 20th century, um, basically, there was just this chronic sur oh, surplus of coffee of oversupply. Um, and so there were these different mechanisms whether it was Brazil just like keeping coffee off the market or burning it, but different attempts at trying to raise the price of coffee during times when there was an oversupply of coffee. And then after World War II, that's when conversations started to kick up a little bit more as far as like, well, what type of like price stabilization tools could be available? Um, and so that's when in 1962, you start to have the formation of the International Coffee Agreement, or the abbreviated version is uh, ICA. And in the beginning, it was mostly about like an equal representation of traditional consuming countries and traditional producing countries coming together and agreeing upon, um, you know, trying to stabilize pricing for both consuming and producing countries. That way, they didn't have these wild fluctuations. But during the most of the 20th century, you know, uh, from what I understand, prices were more or less just constantly in surplus at that point. Um, and then the way that this was enacted was through a quota system. And so consuming countries would basically more or less police how much coffee was brought in. And so each country that was part of the ICA would have their own quota. Um, and the way that I've heard one buyer um, who did buy during the ICA quota period, which is kind of fun to contrast to the way that coffee is bought and sold now, was basically uh, in the beginning of the year, a buyer would be told by a trader or an importer or whoever they were working with, there's going to be X amount of Colombian bags available this year, X amount of Kenyan bags available this year, Brazil, Honduras, Guatemala. What do you need this year? And literally you would book your coffee in the beginning of the year. And that was basically it at that point, because you didn't, it, there's, there's no need to like bring in surpluses of coffee at that point. And so it definitely created stabilization within the marketplace. And then uh, that was 
basically like quotas were visited more or less annually, the way that I understand it, um, just to make sure that it was in alignment. And then a price band was developed. And the price band um, was between $1.20 and $1.40. And so if it went above $1.40, basically what you would do is just release more coffee on the market, you know, create more supply that ends up dropping the price down within to the band. If it was too low, then you end up restricting coffee on the market. And then that would raise the price up at that point. And so that's more or less like kind of just a brief overview of like the mechanism of the ICA in particular. Um, you know, some anthropologists and other social science scientists comment on uh, the implications of like the U.S. and specifically uh, Soviet Russia and communism as like basically a way to stabilize prices that way, like Marxist revolutions wouldn't happen necessarily in Latin America. Um, so, yeah, so that is I mean, it's I've found very few papers that talk about it, um, you know, in detail, but it seems to be one of those things that's more or less mentioned in between like 62 and 89. Um, and it also kind of feels like it lines up pretty well, like with history between the U.S. and, and Soviet Russia, where like the collapse of the Iron Curtain happened in the late 80s and the end of the end of the ICA happened in 89. You know, so very similar times when both of those things just kind of fell apart. Heyo, this podcast music was sponsored by DJ Spicy Ketchup. You can check him out on Spotify for some more juicy beats. Well, I have so many questions and I'm not trying to take up too much of your time. Did you have anything, Anissa? Um, I guess this might be a dumb question, but uh, like what, why is it important to understand like how coffee is sold for the everyday customer? Yeah, like in, in specifically in, in pertaining to like kind of like these old structures or just in, in general? Um, I guess if I was... Um, I mean, yeah, probably more like for people who are like the non-coffee lovers listening to this podcast, like how is that important in their like life, I guess, for coming in and like buying perhaps maybe organic coffee? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think, um, and I think it kind of lines up with the collapse of the ICA actually, you know, because like once there wasn't this, um, stabilizer in the marketplace, what ended up happening was, um, producing countries more or less had to, the way that I understand it, had to dump coffee onto the market. And so two years after the end of the ICA, coffee prices just absolutely plummeted at that point. Yeah. Um, and so that's where you really have like the first quote unquote coffee price crisis, you know, in the, in the early nineties. Um, and this is also the same time with the rise of like fair trade. And so these were like alternative marketplaces where, you know, if you didn't want to pay, you know, like for really, really cheap coffee and you were looking to make like an ethical impact, um, fair trade organic certified coffees was like the perfect outlet for people. Um, and, you know, we, we, we live in an era at the moment where the supply and demand of coffee isn't necessarily regulated by governing bodies at the same time. And so more or less, it's really been put on individuals or businesses uh, to help attempt to mitigate those risks in particular. And so what you purchase definitely has an impact on the livelihood of those, you know, within the supply chain and especially producers in particular. 
Um, you know, this is kind of, I think more or less what like what um, a global value chain scholar Janina Grabs would describe as like the single exit fallacy um, in the sense that like, you know, she paints this picture of um, a theater and the theater is on fire, but the only exit, there's only one exit at that point and it's the entrance. And so those that are closest to um, the door are like most easily able to get out. Um, and then as, you know, more people end up trying to flood that that small space, then it gets tougher to get out. And I think coffee at the moment more or less is kind of trapped in this single exit fallacy. And so like as as tough as that is to to swallow on my end, you know, especially kind of wanting to see like universal equity, you know, for for all producers, you know, this is this is kind of the the structure that we live in today that, you know, your your purchase matters um, much more than it has in the past when there were governmental structures that could intervene on, you know, behalf of growers as well as consumers. I think it prompts sort of the the natural question anytime you and I have had these types of conversations is like, all right, well, how do we fucking fix it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I don't know if we're allowed to curse on this podcast, but are, are we? We did end up cursing. It's okay. an explicit podcast. It is explicit. Um, Damn it. No, it, it. It prompts the question of how do we fix it? I think that's the natural course of the conversation is, oh my gosh, there's so much risk for a coffee producer, not only on the agricultural side, being that coffee's a plant that's subject to pests and disease and you know, surpluses and bumper crops and, you know, down yield years and et cetera, et cetera, among many, many other, you know, cultural dynamics, just operating a business to begin with, right? A farm is a business. And, and then, you know, looking at some of the challenges in how coffee has been sourced and how easy it is for buyers, roasters in particular. I mean, I've, I've heard it joked that it, it's kind of like for a lot of roasters, we're, we're in sort of a, a Tinder coffee economy, <laughs> meaning yeah. we can just oh, gosh. sort of swipe, swipe left and find a new producer if one doesn't work out. Uh-huh. And yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to point blame on anyone in particular, yeah. but in a large way with the era of e-commerce and a whole bunch of other ways to source coffees where the access to, oh, well, I, you know, I don't like the way that coffee tasted and the price was too expensive for me. So I'm just going to swipe left or right or however the hell Tinder works and find a new producer in Peru or Nicaragua or wherever I'm looking. It, and again, I'm not saying that people in coffee are that malicious in the specialty industry or that there's any ill intent towards coffee producers, but it's easy enough for if a coffee is too expensive for me to make my margins, to just find another producer. Yeah. And I think the challenge that you and I have faced as we've worked together uh, with ally roast house, how we source coffees is making sure that regardless of price, we're always working with same producers or we're doing our best to to do that without like you said without any governing bodies it's really hard to maintain that at times but uh it it brings up the intentionality of your purchase 
Yeah. 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 I mean, that makes a ton of sense. You know, I think I tend to think of it, you know, I think one of the things that surprised me when um, I got involved with, with green sales, you know, in comparison to roasted sales normally, and please correct me if I'm wrong as well, but like normally with roasted sales, at least for like a wholesale customer, more or less when you're in, you're in, you know, um, typically it's, it's, you, you have the, the total business, you know, of, of the wholesale client that you're working with. And normally that lasts over a good amount of time. Um, and it takes a lot to screw it up too. Um, from, from what I can tell from my perspective. And then, you know, in contrast with, uh, green coffee, you know, it's typically more or less a little bit easier to get in. But it's also really easy to go ahead and, um, you know, let's say the next harvest cycle, like, quote unquote, lose that business at that point, um, you know. And so I think of it more in terms of like a bidding process, but the bidding process tends to uh, revolve around things like uh, cup quality or perceived cup quality, cup scores. Um, and then, you know, price definitely gets mixed into it at that point, but we don't necessarily create like a bidding war on pricing. It seems a little more with specialty, we create a bidding war on like perceived cup quality at that point. And so like, what's the latest and greatest? Um, and that's, I mean, more or less, that's that's been my experience. And I mean, I, I get it too, um, especially because like every year there's just better coffee and it feels like it's been that way year after year um and so it's it feels really enticing to like want to get the better coffee at that point especially like um within the roasting market you know from from how i see it is like it's 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 definitely competitive you know and you don't you don't want to lose market share because you have the you know quote unquote wrong coffee you know, to the, to the wrong person. And maybe they're looking for something different at that point. And so that's when you start looking outside. Um, and so I say that, you know, because I wrestle with the idealist within myself, as far as like what I would like to see, as far as like solving, you know, equity within the supply chain. And then also the, just like the, the pragmatics, you know, what is reasonable to ask of a person and what is reasonable to ask of a business to deal with like mass structural inequality at that point, you know? And so I think, you know, the, at least for me, the, the idealist um, would lean a little heavier towards maybe some sort of political action, you know, um, it, it seems at the moment that the way that specialty coffee imagines, you know, solving inequality is is by strictly purchasing better coffees. Um, and I don't want to um, obfuscate or minimize the impact that that really does make for producers, especially when there's literally more or less one single exit. Like I don't want to shut the door, per se, you know, on people that are looking to escape chronically low prices. Um, but I do wonder like what a political process would look like that could go ahead and stabilize prices for um, for producers, but maybe also for roasters at the same time where they have like a healthy expectation on, you know, this is what I'm, this is the coffee that I'm getting this year for the next two, three years at that point. And I know that the price isn't necessarily going to skyrocket on me um, because if, if coffee prices go up a dollar or $2 at that point, like it, 
definitely creates issues, um, you know, for the entire supply chain as far as like, well, what are we going to sell coffee at? Um, and then, yeah. yeah, you know, and so, I mean, that's, that's where my mind goes. I mean, the, if the idealist in me would absolutely love to see like a resurgence in the ICA, um, maybe some new mechanisms in it, but definitely getting supply and, and demand under control. And, that's part of a reflection from like the work of John Talbot in particular on his book on political economy and coffee. Um, and then also some of the work from like Jeffrey Sachs and like, if you compare the two time periods together, you know, the ICA period and then the post ICA period. And if you adjust for inflation, the price of coffee more or less um, between 62 and 89 was $3 and 80 cents. And then what is it today? A dollar seventy is what it comes out to adjusted for inflation. And I think the market is not open today. Whoa. But yeah, it closed at a dollar sixty-two. So technically we're still ten cents under like the 31 year average at that point. Um, and then also just kind of looking at like the spread of equity, you know, like how much of your coffee dollar goes back to producers. Um, and if you look from 62 to 89 or producing countries, excuse me, if you look back at 62 to 89, it's around 30 to 50%. And then when you look at, you know, 92 up to now, it's 9.5%. And the market is valued well over $200 billion. I think, Jeez. you know, yeah, it's, it's not so it's like 19.5 billion that ends up back in producing countries. And then you look at a product like RTD, um, and it's, I think it's supposed to be valued at 40 billion by 2025. And so it's roughly twice the amount of value um, that Whoa. it's receiving versus like green coffee at that point. Um, That's wild. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And then, yeah, I think if I go for more of the, the pragmatic approach, um, you know, it's a little bit on what you ended up hitting on. Um, you know, is is buying from the same producing groups year after year. I think maybe the other suggestion I might add would be like buying several different qualities if you can, because any specialty farm is more or less going to produce several different qualities. Um, so if you can create market access for several different qualities for like the same producing group or producer, um, and they can bank on that year after year, I mean, it takes away so much stress from what I can see. Yeah, you brought up a, a couple good points just to maybe give some definitions for folks listening in is you have uh, Q grading, which is built on essentially a hundred point scale, but it's not really a hundred points, is it? It's like 60 to a hundred, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And, and Dean is a licensed Q grader, so he's a, so the smarty pants in the room. <laughs> um <laughs> But when we're talking about, so we, we're really dealing with 60 to 100, so a 40-point quality analysis. And when we're talking specialty, it's 80 and above, correct? Yes. And in all your years, how? what's the highest you've ever scored a coffee? I think 94 points is, is my personal highest. Um yeah, you know, and I would say that most coffees that come into the U.S. are typically how it's graded, you know, definitely falls into that 80 to 88 point. I think 90 points is, you know, considered within the industry kind of like your unicorn coffee. 
the coffee that doesn't necessarily taste like coffee, but it is coffee, but it's not, right. but it is. So it's interesting. So we're yeah. actually looking at like a 14 point difference. Yeah. In terms of quality from 80 points to 94 points would be considered specialty coffee. Yeah. And within that, it's obviously there's some quality, uh, some, what's the word I'm looking for? Objective nature to it mm -hmm. in terms of being licensed, going through the process of evaluating coffees and learning how to evaluate them as a unified front. But at the same time, it's also taste. So there is some level of subjectivity to it. As much as I'm sure Q would like to imagine themselves as 100% objective, yeah. the reality is that it's still a palate, a human palate. Yeah, yeah. And um, someone can from Q can call me out on this or revoke my license. But I, I, I remember... <laughs> When we were in queue, one of the things that was kind of drilled into me was this idea that you need to calibrate with one another. Like what's important in this moment is that you end up agreeing on the scores here together. That's what matters. And so you all need to be tight with each other. And so I think that's more or less what what Q has been after. You know, I think objectivity is, is definitely something that it, it strives for. But what it I think more or less at the end of the day, what it's really aiming for um is consensus as well yeah um like there's how to, a calibration i mean i remember yeah. when you and i first started working together we went back and forth quite a lot on scoring and how we talked about coffee mm -hmm. and quality together yeah so that as we went into the future when we started talking about whether it be quality issues or things that we were looking for we were we were both pretty calibrated with one another to where, you know, we, we both knew what we meant when we were talking about a juicy coffee or yes. a chocolatey coffee or something with heavy body or light body or something yeah. with a lot of aromatics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it kind of feels like that meme uh, with the, with the dude outside and he's like holding out his hand and he sees a butterfly and he's like, is this a, is this a butterfly? And so it felt, <laughs> it felt like when, when you and I started working together, it's like, is, is this a juicy, is this a chocolate, you know, is this an 84? Yeah. Um, we had to make sure that your butterfly wasn't my moth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or a caterpillar or an IPA. I don't know. Just a totally different. Yeah. Well, yeah. So then when we, when we relate that to pricing, it becomes very interesting to equate something as subjective as taste to something as objective as what a producer <laughs> needs to make to keep living <laughs> and and what yeah. they need to make to to run their business to feed their family to be profitable within their own right um and so the idea that at the end of the day me as a a, a roaster tasting a coffee and prescribing a perceived value is is so interesting to me it's it has it has its problems um but from a solution standpoint just so we're not beating ourselves up the whole time yeah. <laughs> it, it it opens the eyes to go all right how how else i mean you and i did something interesting this year with a producer that we've been working with in costa rica where we asked them what they needed to sell this year. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's normally a conversation that you and I wouldn't have. You know, normally I think the conversation more or less is, hey, Aaron, what's up? And you're like, hey, you know, not much. I need some coffee. And I'm like, hey, yo, that's cool. We got coffee. And I'm like, what you looking for? And then you give me the qualifications, you know, like you you give me the specs of, of the coffee. And so typically it's like it's a more or less a top down approach, you know, or at least it's a uh, you know, would it be unilateral? Unilateral? No, I mean one way. I don't. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying yeah. words right now. But yeah, I mean, typically, <laughs> typically the direction is coming uh, from like from the buyer of this is what I need. What you got? Um, and normally it's not the inverse, you know. And um, again, I'm I'm going to go macro. I think a lot of this is because like there's just structural oversupply within the market. And it's not just like any coffee in particular, or like, like mass coffee, but it's also specialty coffees. There's just so much damn good coffee on the market. And so it's very easy, I think. For, <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> hey, thanks. Um, it's very easy, I think, for, for buyers to assume the position of, hey, what do you have? You know, uh, versus yeah. like, hey, what do you need to sell? You know, and that really came out of a, a reflection out of out of a book called White Utopias, um, and White Utopias was written by a, a sociologist who was like basically doing field work um, in uh, transcendental meditation festivals, and so like Burning Man and shit. Um, <laughs> it's it's I, I I listened to the book review and it was really dope. Um, but hell yeah, brother! Yeah, a lot of it kind of dealt with like appropriation, <laughs> like how do you. Like what is appropriation, and and for this author in particular, you know, she found that, um, you know, there there are great cross cultural experiences, food being one of them, and so she was very encouraging at the time of like, you know, if you like tacos, eat tacos, uh, if you like sushi, eat sushi, uh, but, and then where she draw the line or drew the line, you know, with cultural appropriation was basically like if you're in a place of representation it's best to do it with the member of a community or with the community itself and she took that from a philosopher's idea of uh, what she called a, a politics of friendship um, and so that became like a really enticing idea to me that us in in the global north more or less are constantly talking about those in the global south without allowing them chance in the space to be able to speak on what's meaningful um you know for for them their community for you know for them in their own agency um and that's kind of like what inspired the idea of and also it came out of conversation with with brahm our central american buyer um and his time you know just sp spending a lot of time with with producers as far as like what do they need? And so him and I kind of talk often. And one of the conversations that came up was like, you know, um, it's very easy to buy micro lots, but what about my 82 point coffees? What about my 84 point coffees? Like, like these are coffees that I need to move, you know? And so that's when I came to you and I was like, Hey, have you ever entertained this idea of like asking what a producer needs to sell? Because there one, might be one coffee where like they have like 12 buyers after it. And there might be another where they might not have one at that point. And so they're the best impact could be the coffee that tends to get looked over. Yeah. So it's, it switches the model from what I need to what do you need? 
Yeah. And, you know, it, it's more collaborative, I think, you know, because like what 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 do we need? Um, and then when you add the consumer into that into that uh, mix, you know, I think most coffee consumers, especially coffee consumers and traditional coffee consumers, if there's an overlap between them, uh, tend to go for coffee flavored coffee and. <laughs> you know uh but there's also good news in the sense that there are a lot of producers who produce a lot of coffee flavored coffee you know exactly and so it, more or less sometimes <laughs> it just feels like plugging in the right type of coffee versus you know attempting to uh convert or persuade consumers into changing you know their personal preferences when it comes to taste this podcast is sponsored by Roasters Roasting Other Roasters. Stop putting dang peach as a tasting note on everything. This has been Roasters Roasting Other Roasters. Nice. Well, this kind of helps us lead into our next question, which is, um, without name dropping, are there any specific projects you've been a part of that have seen positive strides towards a more sustainable future for coffees? Yeah, you know, um, I am going to do a little name dropping here. Uh, sorry, not sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, we've we've talked a bit about Kami Cavell, Aaron. Um, Brahm and I have yeah. talked a bit about Kami Cavell and um, their producing group that um, we at Ally have been working with, I think, for three plus years now. Um, and it's a cooperative in, in Honduras. Um, it has a little bit of backing from uh, Catholic... Oh my gosh, what is it? Catholic Relief Services. Please forgive me, Brom. Um, and I don't think he's gonna. I, I don't think he is either. I'm okay with it. I'll take the heat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think there's um, cooperatives more or less tend to are at least within the third wave community. And I could be, you know, kind of speaking for a monolith at the moment. Um, so anyone can call me out on this as well. But like tend to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Highlight and and lift up the idea of an individual producer at that point, and typically like a micro lot. Um, but like cooperatives are excellent for a few different reasons. You know, one of them is that they help create market access for smallholders, which make up the majority of of coffee producers. Um, and then they also have um, technical assistance programs as well to go ahead and either help produce their coffee or have agronomists on the ground that can help with their future harvests at the same point. And then the other aspect of it, you know, especially within tight knit communities in particular, is like these are these are spaces that create great social meaning um, within communities. And so. Um, I'm a big fan of collectives, I think in, in general, you know, and I think the cooperative is kind of overlooked or overshadowed as a collective um, or maybe we should start rethinking it because, you know, at least it, it seems to be meaningful to people that are involved in cooperatives in particular, um, you know, and then I think just reflecting on my experience with Ally and, and having some pride in it as well is, Normally, when we're working within a specific region or a country, we really try to identify a few core producing partners, you know, that we're going to rely heavily on. And then we're going to buy several different qualities from them as well, you know, and try to create as, as much market access for them as possible. Um, and I think 
at the end of the day, and it's something that you've already mentioned, Aaron, and something that I've seen Rose House practice over the last five years and certainly beyond that, is just the commitment to buying from the same groups or the same producers year after year. Um, in order to create a sense of stability in an extremely volatile market. Um, you know, that that I think is like one of like the most powerful aspects that like anyone can invest in. That's fantastic, Dean. Well, I just want to thank you. I know that you and I have these types of conversations. This is a normal Tuesday for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's fantastic to get one actually recorded. And uh, uh, I just really appreciate all the work that you do at Ally, but just personally, as a professional, the things that you've, I mean, you're always sending me some new article or podcast or uh, research paper that, you know, I'm like open it up and it's a 95 page paper. I'm like, all right, all right, I, I'll get to it. Man. I'll get to it. <laughs> That's sample time, sample time. Yeah. Reading. Exactly. That's, what that's what I'm, yeah. when I'm sample roasting. I uh -huh. usually read read Dean's <laughs> Dean's papers uh, or papers that he forwards to me. Anyways, yeah. When are you going to start writing your own? That's what we need to really talk about. I have, well, I, first I need to look up how to write. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It's nerve wracking. You know. Um, yeah. No, I really appreciate you saying that, Aaron. It's uh, these are conversations that. Um, you know, I find in, intrinsically rewarding. Um, and the fact that you just take time and space to entertain my curiosity, you know, is like deeply appreciative. Um, and even, even the times you push back, man, I love it. <laughs> yeah, we've gotten into it a couple of mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just, it, I think these are the types of things that hopefully will continue to push because like we experienced with that producer group in Costa Rica, that was something that maybe we had never thought of doing before and open definitely opened my eyes and challenged me to think about how we buy coffee and how to get better at it. You know, sustainability isn't just a, a one trick pony that you just sort of solve and then you go, okay, all I, said and done. I we're, did it. We, we fixed yeah. sustainability now. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Or almost like an I was going to say, or almost like an absolution, you know, like right. absolving yourself, um, yes. you know, like whatever guilt or, you know, complicity that you feel. I think I made up yeah. the word. But, but the reality of it is, is that it's a living problem that will probably always exist, unfortunately, as, as much as I'd love to think that we'll solve it in our lifetime. I can't be that naive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just great to be working with like-minded people that are always trying to push and become better and find greater ways to be more sustainable. So I appreciate you taking the time, Dean. Yeah, I appreciate it, friend. Thank you so much. Well, consider this your weekly public service announcement. Dean already said it. Drink damn good coffee. You can keep up with our latest shenanigans on Instagram, Facebook, at The Roast House, or visit our blog at roasthousecoffee.com. Thanks, y'all.